Today, I'm speaking with Ezra Klein. To an audience of podcast fans, Ezra probably needs a little introduction. He first rose to prominence in the mid-2000s for his individual blogging before being picked up to blog for The American Prospect and then The Washington Post. In 2014, he co-founded Vox.com, where he worked as executive director and hosted the enormously popular podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. In 2020, he moved to The New York Times, where he continues to produce The Ezra Klein Show and now also writes regular columns. Thanks for coming back on the show, Ezra. Happy to be here. Punctuated equilibrium. You need a couple things. You need ideas on the shelf, not in your drawer. Don't put them in your drawer. <laughs> they need to be on a shelf where other people can reach them to, to shift metaphor a little bit here. Yeah. You need ideas that are out there, right? So this is a, a governing model that in the political science literature is called punctuated equilibrium. Nothing happens and then all of a sudden it does, right? All of a sudden the, the, there's a puncture in the equilibrium and new things are possible. And, or as it's put more commonly, you never let a crisis go to waste. And when there is a crisis, people have to pick up the ideas that are around. And a couple things are important for that. One is that the ideas have to be around. Two is that they have to be coming from a source people trust, right, or have reason to believe they should trust. And three, they have to have some relationship with that source. So what you want to be doing is building relationships with the kinds of people who are going to be, you know, making these decisions, what you want to be doing is building up your own credibility as a source on these issues. And what you want to be doing is actually building up good ideas and battle testing them and getting people to critique them and putting them out in detail, right? I think it is very unlikely that air regulation is going to come out of a less wrong post. Um, but I have seen a lot of good ideas from less wrong posts ending up in you know different white paper proposals that now get floated around. And you need a lot more of those. It's funny because, you know, and I've seen this happen in Congress again and again and again. You might wonder, like, why do these think tanks produce all these white papers, you know, or reports that truly nobody reads? And there's a panel that nobody's at. It's a lot of work for nobody to read your thing and nobody to come to your speech. But it's not really nobody. It's that it may really be that only seven people read that report, but five of them were congressional staffers who had to work on this issue. Mm. And like, that's what this whole economy is. It is amazing to me the books that you've never heard of that have ended up hugely influencing national legislation, right? Most people have not read Jumpstarting America by John Gruber and Simon Johnson. But as I understand it, it was actually a pretty important part of the CHIPS bill. And so you have to build the ideas. You have to make the ideas legible and credible to people. And they have to know the people you're trying to make these ideas legible and credible to. Like that is like the process by which, you know, you become part of this when it happens. The disaster model of regulation. The way I think AI regulation is going to happen is something is going to go wrong. There is going to be some event that focuses attention again on AI, right? There's been a sort of reduction in attention over the past couple of months. We've not had a major new release in the way we did with GPT-4, say. And sort of people are drifting onto other topics. Then at some point, you know, there will be a new release. Maybe DeepMind's Gemini system is unbelievable or something. And then at some point, there's going to be a system powerful enough or critical enough that goes bad. And I don't think it's going to go bad in, you know, foom and then we're all dead. Or if it does, you know, this scenario is not relevant. <laughs> but I think it'll go bad in a more banal way. Somebody's going to die. Um, a critical infrastructure is going to go offline. 
there's going to be a huge scam that exploits a vulnerability in operating systems all across the internet and tons of people lose their money or they lose their passwords or whatever. Mm. And Congress, which is nervous, is going to like that'll be the moment that people begin to, to legislate. And once you get into a process where people are trying to work on towards an outcome, not just position within a debate, I suspect you'll find people finding more points of common ground and working together a little bit more. Um, I, I already feel like I see from, you know, where we were six or eight months ago, people coming a little bit more to earth and a little bit nearer to each other in the debate. Not every sort of loud voice on Twitter, but just in the sort of conversations I'm, you know, around and, and, and in. And I think that I think you'll see something like that eventually. I just don't think we're there yet. How to slow down advances in AI capabilities. My view is you try to slow this down to the extent you do through making, forcing it to be better. I don't think, hey, we're going to slow you down is a strong or winning political position. I do think you need to achieve X before you can release a product is how you slow things down in a way that makes sense. So, you know, I've used the example and uh, I recognize like this example actually may be so difficult that it's not possible, but you could really imagine. I think it would be possible to win a political fight that demands a level of interpretability of AI systems that basically renders the major systems null and void right now. Um, You know, if you look at Chuck Schumer's uh, speech that he gave on uh, safe innovation, right, which is his regulatory, his pre-regulatory framework, his like framework for discussion of a regulatory framework, he, you know, one of his major things is explainability. And, you know, he has talked to people. I know I've been around these conversations, um, you know, and people have told him this may not be possible. And he's put that in there, but he still wants it there. Right. Frankly, I want it. I want it, too. So maybe explainability, interpretability is not possible, but it's an example of something where if Congress did say you have to do this, particularly for AI that does X, it would slow things down because, frankly, they don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. And there are a lot of things like that that I think are are less difficult than interpretability. And so I think the way you will end up slowing some of these systems down is not, you know, we need to pause because we think you're going to kill everybody. I don't think that's going to be a winning position. But you need to slow down because we need to be confident that this is going to be a good piece of work when it comes out. I mean, that's something we do constantly. You can't just build – I mean, in this country, you kind of can't build a nuclear power plant at all. But, you know, you, you definitely can't build one – you know, as quickly as you can, cutting all the corners. Yeah. And then there are other things you could do that would slow people down. You know, one of the things that I think should get more, you know, and I've written about this, um, some at least some attention, is a question of where liability sits in these systems. So if you think about social media, we basically said there's almost no liability on the social media companies. Um, they've created a platform. The liability rests with the people who put things on the platform. I'm not sure that's how it should work for AI. Uh, you know, when you're, I think most of the question is how the general underlying model is created. And so if OpenAI sells our model to someone and that model is used for something terrible, is that just the buyer's fault or is that OpenAI's fault? I mean, you know, how much power does a buyer even have over the model? And so, but if you put a lot of liability on the core designers of the models, they would have to be pretty damn sure these things worked before they release them, right? And so things like that could slow people down. Yeah. So forcing people to make things 
up to a higher standard of quality or reliability or interpretability, et cetera. That is a way of, of, of slowing down the, the, the development process and slowing it down for a reason, which is, you know, to be fair, what I think you should slow it down for. The viability of licensing. There's another big cluster of proposals, maybe the largest, that is a combination of requiring organizations to seek government licenses if they're going to be training really large or very general AI models. And, you know, in the process of getting a license, they would have to demonstrate that they know how to do it responsibly or at least as responsibly as as anyone does at the time. Um, And those rules could potentially be assisted by legislation saying that only projects with those government licenses would be allowed to access the latest and most powerful AI-specialized supercomputers, um, which is sometimes called compute governance. How does that approach that? How do you think that would come out of the messy legislative process? I'm interested in that. I don't know. Uh, I could see this going a lot of ways. And that one in particular, I'm, I've really gone back and forth on this because I've talked about it with a lot of people. And that... The reason you're hearing me hesitate is that I think it's actually a very – so here, here's a, the question, right? On the one hand, yeah, if you take AI, take the metaphor basically that what you're developing in AI is a very, very powerful weapon, right? Well, of course, if you're developing a very powerful, very secret weapon, you want that done in a highly regulated facility or you want that done by a facility that is highly trusted, Right and workers who are highly trusted and everything from their technical capacity to their cybersecurity practices. So that makes a ton of sense. On the other hand, if what you say is you're developing the most important consumer technology of this era, and in order to do that, you're going to need to be a big enough company to get through this huge regulatory gauntlet that is going to be pretty easy for a Google or a Meta or a Microsoft to, to do because like they have all the, the lawyers and you know they, they have the lobbyists and so on. I could imagine as that goes through Congress, people get real antsy about the idea that they're basically creating a sort of almost government-protected monopoly, you know, entrenching the position of these this fairly small number of companies and making it harder to decentralize AI if that's something that is is truly possible, right? And and some people believe it is, right? I mean, there's that Google thing about how there, you know, this internal Google document that leaks about how there's no moat. Meta's tried to talk about, you know, open sourcing more of their work, right? Who, who knows where it really goes over time? But I think the politics of saying the government is going to centralize AI development in private actors are is pretty tough. You know, there's a different set of versions of this, you know, and I've heard many of the top people in these AI companies say to me, you know, oh, what I really wish is that as we get closer to AGI, that all this gets turned over to some kind of international public body, right? You know, you hear different versions and, and different metaphors, a UN for AI, a CERN for AI, a, you know, you pick the, you know, you pick the the group, an IAEA for, for AI. But I don't think it's going to happen because it's, it's first and foremost a consumer technology or is being treated as such. And the idea idea that you're going to nationalize or internationalize a consumer technology that is, you know, creating all these companies and spinning all these companies off is, is very, there's functionally no precedent for that anywhere. So this is a place, and this goes maybe back a little bit to the AI ethics versus AI risk um, issue, where it looks really, really, really reasonable under one kind of you know, dominant internal metaphor, right? You know, we're creating the most dangerous weapon humanity's ever held. 
And it looks really, really unreasonable if your view is this is a very um, lucrative software development project that, you know, we want lots of people to be able to participate in. And so, yeah, I, I imagine that I think that will have a harder time in a legislative process once it gets out of the community of people who are operating off of this sort of shared you know, this is the most dangerous thing humanity's ever done, sort of internal logic. Yeah. I'm not saying those people are wrong, by the way. That's just, you know, my assessment of the the difficulty here. Manhattan Project for AI Safety. Another broad approach that's out there is sometimes branded as a Manhattan Project for AI safety. Basically, the US and UK and I guess the EU governments spending billions of dollars on research and development to solve the technical problems that exist around keeping AGI aligned with our goals and having sufficiently strong guardrails that they can't easily be retrained to commit all sorts of crimes, for example. Um, the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, has, has talked in favor of this. And uh, yeah, the economist Samuel Hammond wrote uh, an article in Politico that, that we're linked to. But yeah, what, what, what do you think of that broad approach? Yeah, that I'm, I'm very much for. Um, I don't think I would choose a metaphor of a Manhattan project for AI safety just because I don't think people believe we need that and that's not going to be much of a political winner. But AI is a great thing to spend lots of R&D money on and to have a really strong public research infrastructure around. And a good amount of that research should be on safety and interpretability. And, you know, we should really want this to work and it should happen. And yeah, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's actually a possible thing you could achieve. Look, I don't trust any any view I hold about takeoff rates. But what I do think is that if we are in like a sort of vertical takeoff scenario, policy is just going to lag so far behind that we almost have nothing we can do but hope for the best. If we're in more modest takeoff scenarios, which I think are more likely in general, well, then building institutions can really work. And, uh, you know, we can be making progress alongside the, the increase in capability and capacity and danger. And so that's where I think coming up with ideas that also just play into the fact that different countries want to dominate this, different countries want to get the most that they can out of this, different countries want to make sure a lot of this is done for the public good, and that it's actually not that expensive. I mean, it is expensive for most companies, which is why, you know, OpenAI has to be attached to Microsoft and DeepMind had to be part of Google and so on. But, you know, from the perspective of a country's budget, it's not impossible to to have real traction on this. Yeah. Now getting the expertise and, you know, knowing how to, you know, getting the right engineers and so on, that's tougher. But 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 it's doable. And so, yeah, I think that's somewhere where there's, you know, a, a lot of promise. And the good thing about building institutions like that, even if they're not focused on exactly what you want them to be, is that then when they do need to refocus, if they do need to refocus, you have somewhere to do that, right? You, you know, you have something that can become, you know, if you have a Manhattan Project just for AI, well, then you could have a Manhattan Project for AI safety because it was already happening then. You just have to expand it. So that's where I think beginning to see yourself as in a foundation building phase is useful. I mean, it's again, it's why I emphasize that at this point, you know, it's good to think about your policies, but also think about the frameworks under which policy will be made. You know, who are the members of Congress who understand this really well and, you know, you're hoping will be a leader on this and you want to have like good relationships with then you know, keeping their staff informed and so on. And what are the institutions where all this work is going to be done and do they need to be built from scratch and what kind of people go into them and how do you get the best people into them? And 
all of that is not like the policy at the end of the rainbow, but you need all that for that policy to ever happen and to ever work if it does happen. Parenting. I think one is that, and this is like a very like long running piece of advice, but um, kids see what you do. They don't listen to what you say. And, you know, for a long time, they don't have language. And so what you are modeling is always a thing that they are really absorbing. And that includes, by the way, their relationship to you and your relationship to them. And something that really affected my parenting is I believe it's a clip of Toni Morrison, if I'm not wrong, talking about how she realized at a certain point that when she saw her kids, that, you know, she knew she, how much she loved them. But what they heard from her sometimes was the stuff she was trying to fix, right? Your shoes are untied, you know, your, you know, your hair is all messed up, you're dirty, like you need to whatever. And that she, she had this conscious moment of trying to make sure that the first thing they saw from her was how she felt about them. And so I, I actually think that's a really profound thing as a parent, the, this idea that, um, you know, I always want my kids to feel like I am happy to see them, right? That's like to, the, the, they feel that they are like seen and wanted to be seen. So that's something that I think about a lot. And then another thing is you actually have to take care of yourself as a parent. Hmm. And one thing you're about to learn and you're getting, you know, I worry I'm like a little more grumpy on this show today than I normally am because my kid had croup all night and I'm just tired. And the thing that I've learned as a parent is that just 75% of how I deal with the world, like how good of a version of me the world gets is how much sleep I got. And you got to take care of yourself. And that's not always the culture of parenting, particularly modern parenting. You need people around you. You need to let off your own steam. You need, to, you need to still be a person. But, you know, a huge part of parenting is not how you parent the kid, but how you parent yourself. And I'm just like a pretty crappy parent when I do a worse job of that. And a pretty good parent when I do a good job of that. But a lot of like how present I can be with my child is am I sleeping enough? Am I meditating enough? Am I eating well? You know, am I taking care of my stress level? So, you know, it's not 100% of parenting a child is parenting yourself, but I think about 50% of parenting a child is parenting yourself. And uh, um, that's a that's an easy thing to forget. Yeah. It is astonishing how much more irritable I get when I'm underslept. Uh, that's 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 maybe my greatest fear. <laughs> yeah, it, it's bad. Like it's, I really, I mean, yeah, again, like even in this conversation, I've been like, I'm, I'm a little, like a little probably like edgier than I normally am. And I've just felt terrible all day. And there's just, it's a crazy thing when you become a parent and you realize other parents have been doing this all the time. Mm. Like, and you see them, it's cold and flu season and you understand that you didn't understand what they were telling you before and somehow all these people are just running around doing the same jobs they always have to do and carrying the same amount of responsibility at work and so on just operating at 50 percent of their capacity <laughs> all the time and not really complaining about it that much and it's it, it's a whole new world of um admiring others uh, uh opens up to you it's like i have two kids and now like my admiration of people who have three or four is so high <laughs> <laughs> um so you know it's a it's a, it's a real thing but it does open you up to a lot of beautiful vistas of, of human experience and as somebody who you know is interested in the world it was really undersold to me how interesting kids are um and being how interesting being a parent is and it's worth paying attention to not just because you're supposed to but because you learn just a tremendous amount about what it means to be a human being. 